When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Oh, TJ, work has been um, hard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you, but the IT department, they uh, set my phone up to make calls. And then I found out today, what, three, four weeks in, they didn't actually set my phone up to receive calls. Whoops. So... That was four weeks of work gone. <laughs> How does that work? Because, you know, they have that intricate, like, it just can't be a phone plugged into a wall anymore. They have to have, like, apps and buttons and beep, 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 and it's got to be attached to a, a network, and they didn't click a button, and so I well, wasn't right getting then. phone calls, so I'm like, <laughs> like, nobody's calling me back. Well, no, probably everybody called me back. How was your week? Uh, Pass. Okay. and uh, at the top of the show if you guys could do us a favor because it helps us out a lot it makes the show better it gets us a little bit more recognition if you could head over to wherever you check out podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a rating that would help us out a lot and other than that i think that's all of our business is that correct oh yeah uh country fans if we got country fans out there that are looking for to mix up their playlists this summer uh, on Spotify, my producer just released an awesome playlist called California Country Roots. So it's a mix of local independent California artists, country artists, but also major label favorites. So really fun for summer. I checked it out. It's all kinds of fun. And TJ, are you on, on the playlist? And I am on it. I am Our on it twice. Our very own TJ is on that playlist. You guys go... Check that out. She is an amazing singer. Both of my we songs don't, are We on don't there. usually like promote it on this show, but seriously, you guys, go check this playlist out. Uh, I'm not a massive country fan, but I love it. So there. I strongly encourage it. Like I say, my producer's on there and a bunch of other artists that she has produced as well. And then, But it's not just indie artists that you won't know anything. There's also the major labels. So it'll be... It's a good, it's a great playlist. It's super fun for the summertime. Get a barbecue going, put, pop that on your Spotify, instant party. Take off your pants. That too. <laughs> Today we are talking about Mr. Sam Cooke. 
I have to say, I I loved Sam Cooke. I grew, this is the kind of music I grew up on, that when I was younger, I actually hated my mother for making me listen to it. And now it's kind of all I want to listen to. Nice. <laughs> so I was pretty excited to deep dive because I only knew his music. I didn't know his story. And then there's a great podcast called uh, Hollywood Crime Scene that did an episode on him. And I was like, kind of blown away because his story was so interesting. And even like past his death was just his whole story every all everything in his orbit is just so interesting i get a dollar every time i say interesting not for me <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about sam cook and normally at the top of the show i cite all my sources but i actually thought the best way to probably do that is to put it in the show notes from now on and that way if there's a direct link if you're interested in finding anything else out about the story you should be able just to you know drag and drop and check out the direct link that we used. If it's a book, I will place the author and where I purchased it from. So a little change from the top of the show. So for those who don't know, Sam Cooke was an American singer, songwriter, civil rights activist, and entrepreneur. And Sam Cooke was born on January 22nd, 1931 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, a town very much in the throes of the Great Depression. And a little bit of history about Clarksdale, just so you kind of get an idea of where Sam Cooke spent some of his formative years Clarksdale citizens are famous for their civil right activism and the Clarksdale Police Department is equally famous for its effort in limiting those rights on May 29 1958 Martin Luther King visited Clarksdale for the first major meeting of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference the SCLC and in 1960 Aaron Henry a local pharmacist who was named the state president of the NAACP went on to organize a two-year-long boycott of Clarksdale businesses. Was it King or King Jr. that visited there? Martin Luther King Jr. Okay. 1958. Yeah. Sam was born to a Baptist minister, the Reverend Charles Cook, and his wife, Annie May. And Sam was the fifth of eight children. <sighs> Big families back then. Eight kids in the middle of the Depression, though. Yeah, but they didn't have any way around it. I mean... Yeah, I mean, that is true. Sam's family migrated to Chicago in 1933 when Sam was two, where his father Charles became a minister in the Church of Christ Holiness Church. He attended Doolittle Elementary and later Wendell Phillips Academy High School. He began his musical career at age nine when he joined a group called the Singing Children along with his siblings. At the age of 14, he became the lead singer with the Highway QCs so named because their home base was the Highway Baptist Church with his younger brother, Elsie Cook. It was here that they sang with all the leading gospel groups of the day when they passed through Chicago. Cook modeled his work after one of his earliest inspirations, the Soul Stirrers. The Soul Stirrers started as a popular American gospel group whose career spanned over 80 years. So I guess it was kind of like, you know, members would come in, members would drop out. Yeah, it's a group. Kind of like Menudo. Yeah. <laughs> There, see, I'm putting it into terms I understand. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the group was a pioneer in development of the, the quartet style of gospel and a major influence on soul, doo-wop, and Motown and some of the secular music that owed its roots to gospel. The group was formed by Silas Roy Crane in 1926 in Trinity, Texas. It was here that Crane launched his first quartet who sang in Jubilee style. I didn't look up Jubilee style, but that sounds like fun. Well, yeah. I feel like they have a tambourine. Probably. They definitely have a triangle. I would say they definitely have a tambourine, probably have a triangle. You can't do good music without a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> In 
In the 1930s, after Crane moved to Houston, he joined an existing group on the condition that they changed their name to the Soul Stirrers. That's how the group got its name, because a guy said, change your name. And then they were like, okay. It was weird, though. I couldn't find the original name of the band that he joined. I could only find that he told them to change their name to the Soul Stirrers, and they did. So it probably was a really bad name first. So he said, hey, here's something. Hey, welcome to the Hippie Crocodiles. And he's like, no. Okay, that would be a really cool name for a band. I'm sorry. (laughs) That would be awesome. Write that down. That's my new band name. Yeah. (laughs) LD and the Hippie Crocodiles. With TJ on the triangle. (laughs) (laughs) Can I be in it? Yes. Yes. You're playing the triangle. Oh, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> Among the members of the Soul Stirrers were R.H. Herbert Harris, who soon became its musical leader. And Sam Cooke was a massive fan. Not long after graduating high school in 1948, Sam got the chance of a lifetime, being asked to join the Soul Stirrers, which provided him with the opportunity to hone his craft. As part of the hugely successful group, he established a new standard for gospel expression such as Touch the Hem of His Garment, Be With Me Jesus, and Jesus Washed Away My Troubles. Cook was often credited with bringing gospel music to the attention of young, younger, a younger crowd of listeners, mainly girls who would rush the stage when the Soulsters performed just so they could get a glimpse at Cook. We here at Rock and Roll Heaven are not ones to speculate, but in a lot of my research, I came across the fact that Sam Cook was kind of a scamp. A scamp? Yes, a scamp. He really liked the ladies. Is that a scamp? That's a scamp. I would think a He's, scamp is just like a little troublemaker. Uh, well, what would you call it? More so than... What's a fancy old-timey word for skirt chasing? Skirt chasing? Okay. Womanizing? No, there's a name for it, and I can't think of it. It's like a fancy word. Scoundrel. Scoundrel. That's the word well, I was thinking scoundrels of. scoundrels seems more like a bad guy. Cad. Mm. Heel. No... Haberdasher. Maybe. Caddy Wampus. <laughs> <laughs> he liked the ladies. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not ones to speculate here, but in all my research, I did come across that he was quite the um, ladies' man. Uh, fun fact. Sam graduated from Wendell Phillips High School in 1948, where he distinguished himself as an A student. So he's a really smart guy. And we'll actually learn a little bit more about that later. And he was also voted most likely to succeed. I feel like that's the first time I've ever heard of someone being voted most likely to succeed and actually did it. I'm sure that there's plenty of people out there. I'm sure. I just don't hear about it. And by the time he was 20, Sam's voice was a finely honed instrument. And he was noted for bringing up the spirit in the churchgoers. So when he would perform, like he could really get a crowd going like on their feet, just... And there was one point where he had super low energy and someone in the crowd just screamed, Sam, sing, GD it. And he would like snap to attention. And like a couple minutes later, the whole place was just rocking. Nice. During that time, the Soul Stirrers were one of the top acts in all of the night gospel circuits. The group actually recorded for Aladdin Records in the 1940s. And in 1948, they actually signed with a record company called Specialty Records. And that will come up later. 
In December 1950, Robert Harris quit the stirs, and B.R. Robinson spoke up for the young cook. And in 1951, at the age of 19, he became the lead vocalist of the Soul Stirs. And you have to imagine, like, that was huge because Sam created, like, the highway QCs. Right. And patterned himself after this group. And he became a member, and then all of a sudden, he's the lead vocalist. That's got to be huge for him. At 19? Well, yeah. In 1950, Cook's first session with the group produced Jesus Gave Me Water. With his soaring lead vocals, Cook brought style to the gospel format. Through Jesus Gave Me Water betrays the youth and experience of the 20-year-old Cook, and it showed the potential that he had. He remained with the Soul Stirrers for the next six years before exploring secular music. Traveling back and forth across the country, he had gained a wealth of knowledge regarding how black people were treated. And we had talked about this the first time we attempted to record this, but he he was working on the Chitlin Circuit. And the Chitlin Circuit was basically, kind of along with the Green Book, a place where you knew that it was safe for you to book a hotel room or eat or get gas or anything like that. It was a way that you could stay safe as an African-American in that era. Well, that was the Green Book was helpful for that. But the Chitlin yeah. Circuit was basically a, a circuit where you would find friendly audiences. Yeah, it was the venues that you could go into as an African-American and they would have you, they would book you. Yeah. His refusal to sing at segregated concerts led to what many have described as his first real effort in civil disobedience and help usher in the new civil rights movement. Cook also at this time became a gospel superstar. However, constraints against gospel performers performing secular material were strong and woven deep into the fabric of the African-American community. Yet, the monetary and worldly rewards for singing gospel could never equal those that you would gain for singing with the masses. Well, yeah. So he was actually briefly married to singer-dancer Dolores Mohawk, who actually divorced him over his serial infidelity. And this is what I was talking about, that he was maybe not the best with the ladies. Womp womp. But uh, she was actually killed in a car crash in California in 1959. And Cook actually paid all of her final medical expenses, her burial expenses, and kind of just took up the mantle of taking care of all of her affairs. His song, Somewhere There's a Girl, was written in honor of his first wife. So we were talking about how Sam was kind of reluctant to do secular music, but he was actually convinced to do a single called Lovable, which is a remake of the gospel song Wonderful. And that was released in 1959 under the nom de plume Dale Cook. In the end, Lovable sold 25,000 copies. But here's the thing. Even though he went under Dale Cook, Sam's voice was way too unique to not be recognized and nobody was fooled. So he had one of those kinds of voices that was like almost instantly recognizable. And so they'd, they'd check the album and it would say Dale Cook. And they're like, no, this is Sam Cook. So they, it, like he wasn't fooling anybody. No, he was just trying to get around the whole, if you're a gospel singer, you can't sing secular music yeah. rules. But also between his father, who was a reverend, and the Soul Stirrers, like think about how much pressure he had to have been under when he was actually recording that to not get caught. Well, yeah, he had to like, didn't he have to go around and like afterwards get people's blessings to like record? Kinda, yeah. I, I think I have that in my notes. Cook's Lovable set off a backlash from his gospel fans and the soul stirrers were booed whenever they appeared. So, Which is just crazy. It's not like he's singing anything untoward. 
But you have to remember at the time there was definitely a separation of the church and secular music. Yeah. And they felt, because remember, this was the devil's music. Was it though? I mean, this was a this was a, <laughs> this was a new form of music that's really coming out, and they're 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 pulling from gospel music to create things like Motown and doo wop, and they're talking about untoward things. I mean, they're yes. talking about like hooking up with late. You send me Cupid twisting the night away, like that was dancing. All right. So eventually, Cook was released by the Soul Stirrers and replaced by Johnny Taylor. Art Root, the head of Specialty Records, as the label for the Soul Stirrers, actually gave his blessing to Cook to record secular music under his real name. But he was unhappy about the type of music that Cook and his producer, Bumps Blackwell, were trying to make. Root expected Cook's secular music to be similar to that of Little Richard, who was another Specialty Records artist. When Root walked in on a recording session and heard Cook covering Gershwin, he became really upset. So... So that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I don't know why they're getting so mad. I mean, he's not he's not singing little Richard style songs. He's singing like Gershwin. An argument broke out and both Cook and Blackwell left the specialty label. And it was at this time in 1957 that Sam decided to add an E to the end of his name. He reasoned with that of a full name and the even amount of letters. It was good luck with his new fresh start. Nice. Yeah. By the height of his fame in the gospel world, Sam moved over to popular music with the blessing of his father at this point. So now he's left the Soul Stirrers, he's left Specialty Records, and he's got the blessing of his dad. So now I think he probably feels a little bit more comfortable about doing the music that he loves. Right. And I think it is important to kind of get the blessings of the people that you really hold dear. I do think, though, it's pretty funny that he named he changed his name to Dale Cook. <laughs> and not like something completely different. like Yeah, like Nina did it to hide completely. Like, why not change your name to like Thomas Madigan? I don't know why I came up with that name. That's very Irish of you. <laughs> so he had the blessing of his dad at this point. And Sam didn't cross over. He combined musical styles, blending sensuality and spirituality, sophistication and soul. However, in the next five months, there were no more releases by Dale Cook or even Sam Cook for that matter. Later in the year, he signed a deal with Keen Records. That name should be familiar to our listeners out there and to you, TJ. Oh, yeah. I remember that name. My spidey sense starts tingling when you say Keen. Seriously. (laughs) If you guys don't remember, Bob Keen at Delphi Records was also affiliated with Bobby Fuller. And he's going to be affiliated with someone else that we're going to be talking to about in a future episode, which is Richie Valens. Yeah, but uh, we here at Rock and Roll Heaven have a a belief that Bob Keen had. We feel there is some connection, and those are just our opinions. We're just saying that it's weird it's, that some things happened. It's certainly an interesting coincidence. Yeah, you know, it's, we're not saying we're not anything. Saying anything. Ha- you know, don't sue us. But there's some interesting uh, dinks. Yep. So he was with King Records and released his first number one hit, You Send Me. I love that song. I love that song so much. It's so good. You send me. So good. He's so good. The song was number one on the Billboard R&B charts for six weeks. His hypnotically smooth voice, not to mention his finely chiseled good looks, which <laughs> made him hit almost instant success. I went into my... Ow, ow. I mean, I went into my, my sexy voice for that. 
Yeah, you did. His hypnotically smooth voice. Wow. <laughs> it sold over a million copies and made Sam an overnight success. And in my notes, overnight success is in quotations. Quotes, bunny ears? Yeah. Because I think it's so funny when people say that they're an overnight success and you have no idea how much work they put into getting where they are at that day. Like, I mean, clearly. He started when he was like nine. Yeah. <laughs> He was on his way to becoming one of the biggest voices on the radio. Record producers vied just to sign him to a contract only a few months after the release of You Send Me. You Send Me established Cook as a commercial artist and as an original pop stylist. In February 1958, Specialty filed a lawsuit claiming Cook actually had written and recorded You Send Me while still under contract to Specialty and then recorded it for Keen. That being so that the rights actually belonged to Specialty. Cook claimed that the song had been written by his brother, who was under no such restraints. That's kind of shifty. Like, oh, wait, you're super famous now. You totally wrote and sang that when you were with us. Yeah, it's super shady. Shame on you, specialty records. If he had done it with you, why didn't you release it? And if you didn't, then shame on you, and now you forfeit those rights. I think that's how that should go. I know it's not how it really goes. But I believe that that's how it should be. Yep. The musical patterns in You Send Me was the basis for most of Cook's first year with Keen. They were love songs with pretty arrangements and sung with a rolling and medium tempo. And Cook actually appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. The show's producers received many complaints after cutting his performance short. And so he was asked back the following week. With the success of this performance and his first single, he began the tour of the country. And around this time, he also sang Only 16. And I cannot say this without saying it a certain way. So I'm sorry. But everybody loves to cha-cha-cha. Amidst growing popularity, he appeared... <laughs> Amidst growing popularity, he appeared on ABC's The Guy Mitchell Show. After the success of You Send Me in 1957, Sam signed with the William Morris Agency so the whole thing about the William Morris Agency is there's a documentary on Netflix called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. And I'm not going to do the story justice if I tell you. Uh, so I think the best way for me to approach this is to just tell you guys, go check out a documentary called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. It's on Netflix right now. It is. It's part of that remastered series that I talked about in the um, in the Johnny Cash episode. Within six months. Cook was booked at the world-famous Copacabana, which was a prestigious and mostly white club in New York City. Cook knew that a successful performance at the Copa would solidify his success. He felt pressured, and he bombed. At the Copa. Copacabana. Years later on the... Sorry, I'm done. Years later on the Michael Douglas show, Cook opened up about the show at the Copa. I know why I bombed. It was because I wasn't ready. Still feeling the sting, Cook returned to the road. And again, there's a story in The Two Killings of Sam Cooke where when he was actually on the road at one point, he and all of his bandmates and the female group that was performing with him had decided that they were hungry and they were going to stop and grab something to eat. And so they stop at a place that might not have been in the Green Book. And so they walk up and they find a table and they sit down and the cook comes over and tells them to get up and move. And they refused. So they were actually kicked out and so they they get back on the tour bus and soon they're pulled over by the police and the police get on the bus and he's like we're looking for those ladies that the broads I think that zest off to the cook 
and Sam Cooke stood up to the cops and was like, well, you're on my bus now and you're being rude. Yeah. So it was just like little things like that that Sam would do just to kind of stick it. And I love him for that. So another fun fact was that Cooke was an insatiable reader. At every opportunity, he would be buried in a book or a periodical. And he even ordered an airplane swivel light installed in his car so he could read on the road. So I just really hope that he wasn't reading while he was driving. I'm fairly certain it was not like at the driver's seat. I hope not. Because by then maybe <laughs> he, he had a driver. Yeah. Yeah. Stopping at a drugstore along the tour route, neither his band nor his brother, Charles and Elsie, who accompanied him everywhere, were surprised to see him buying a copy of every magazine on display. He would devour everything from Playboy to The New Yorker to War and Peace and The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. That's pretty cool. Yeah. He studied the writings of Aristotle and of historian John Hope Franklin. And according to his brother, Sam's first knowledge began in early childhood and just never left him. Which, I mean, he was an A student. So obviously he cared about his education and, and making sure that he, he was learned. Well, and it helps your writing, too. I actually found a quote from Lou Adler, which was... Something that I thought was just really cool. He carried a blue spiral notebook everywhere he went. And I, I'm wondering, like, was it one single blue spiral notebook? Or did he have a ton of spiral notebooks and they were all blue? Like, it, that was his favorite color. I Probably couldn't... more than one because he had a very large catalog of songs that he had written. Fair. So, yeah, definitely more than one. They probably just were all blue. Yeah. And... He would fill them with lyrics, sometimes even jotting down words while he was talking to you. <laughs> Done that. Yeah. <laughs> I do it all the time. So one time he actually showed Herb, Herb Alpert a song that he was working on, and he asked Lou what he actually thought about the lyrics, and he said it seemed really trite to me. So he asked him how did the song go, and he pulled out a guitar and started playing, and then all of a sudden things that looked so corny on the paper turned into this magical event. It was because he had a way of phrasing and a way of presenting his feelings that were uniquely his. He had a very clear way of expressing himself. And that was a quote from Lou Adler. So in 1959, Sam married Barbara Campbell, his childhood sweetheart, at her grandmother's house in Chicago with his father performing the ceremony. And they had two daughters, Linda and Tracy. They actually also had a son named Vincent who died tragically at the age of 18 months who actually drowned in their swimming pool in 1950, uh, 1964. And I tried to find as much information as I could on the death of Vincent, but there's just not that much. I'm sure that's something that the family has kept private on purpose. That's a really tragic event. And Sam, till the day he died, kind of blamed her for Vincent's death. Because he was, from what I understand, he was touring and she was inside the house, and Vincent wandered out to the pool area, fell in, and drowned. And so, you know, I can imagine how she felt and how he felt. So, yeah. I mean, it's tragic all the way around. His sweet little baby. Yeah. Uh, Cook then moved his family into a beautiful Hollywood Hills home, and he also purchased a Ferrari. I point out this Ferrari because it will come into play later. It was also in 1959 that Cook left Keene over a royalty dispute. And in 1960, he signed with RCA and began writing blues and gospel-influenced songs. He would also get the ownership of his master recordings after 30 years, which was kind of at the time unprecedented. Sam had become the first major African-American artist to sign with RCA. 
Cook's first releases on RCA barely made it to the middle of the pop charts. And it did a little bit better on the R&B charts, but not much. So what I was saying before was he would record these, these songs. And later on, they would hit the charts and become more successful. But in the beginning, he wasn't getting much traction. To add insult to injury, Sam wrote a song called Nobody Loves Me Like You, which actually became a hit for, for the Flamingos later that spring. Which, so I don't know if we really noted, this is the second time we're recording this because we had a little uh, technical difficulty again. A kerfuffle. A kerfuffle, if you will. So if you're not familiar with the Flamingos, because the first time we're like, I don't even think I know who the Flamingos are. And then we looked up at their songs and it's like, oh, oh. just kidding. We love them. So they were most famous for the I Only Have Eyes For You, I'm guessing, is probably their most famous song. The I Only Have Eyes. And then song. I told my mom about the Flamingos and she's like, I love the Flamingos. Yeah. some A group that we're not necessarily the most familiar with nowadays, but you know their songs, if not their names. Okay, so... Remember we talked about specialty records and then how he was with Keen at Delphi Records and then he moved to RCA. Well, anything that he had done with Bob Keen stayed with Bob Keen. And after he joined RCA, Keen issued his second biggest hit up to that time, the million-selling Wonderful World. And it's not the Wonderful World that you're thinking of. I know the minute that I said that, the Louis Armstrong song popped into your head, but it's the Don't Know Much About History, Don't Know Much Biology. Which is a lie, Sam Cook, because you were a smart, smart man. But I do know that, that I, I love, love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Even without <laughs> this hit, Cook continued to be a big hit on the one-nighter and R&B circuit. In March, he toured the Caribbean to sold-out houses. Like all black artists at the time, Cook and his band came face-to-face with the nightmarish prejudice and segregation of the South. I'm sorry. Choices were limited. Restaurants wouldn't serve them, and they actually would end up making sandwiches and eating them in their car. They would travel hundreds of miles between shows to find boarding houses that would actually take them in. All while, there were more and more whites in the audience. Cook endured and observed, and he always took a stand. And this is the part that I, I really... I get so angry when I hear stuff like this. In Memphis, police ordered him to push his car after he had run out of gas, but he refused. And I've actually seen that played out in a a movie. And it was, um, you know, the the Stephen King miniseries that was on Hulu, 11-22-63? Yeah. Remember that scene where James Franco sees the school administrator's assistant on the side of the road? Yeah, yeah. And basically the guy refused to give her gas even though she was a woman, it was getting to be dark and she was completely out of gas and James Franco like throws the money and takes the gas. the gas station attendant's like, we'll push it to the next gas station. That is so unfair. Just some of the stuff, like, and I think, I feel like saying some of it is downplaying. There's just some vile, vile things that happened at that time. Yeah. And I, I, when people are like, quote unquote, the good old days, like, who was it good for? Yeah. There's a whole bunch of people it was not good for. It was not good for a lot of people. It's not good for a lot of people right now. Yeah. Let's it, not repeat this stuff. Like, it's just enough. Enough is enough. Enough. Be kind to each other. It makes me very sad to see some of this, some of these warning signals that this could be coming back around again. 
and even watching it blatantly play out like just enough people enough yeah jesus didn't say love thy neighbor except if and fill in the blank no just be good to people okay end rant in Atlanta, he was scheduled to headline a concert broadcast on the, the Dick Clark Saturday Night Beach Nuts show. And to this day, I'm absolutely convinced that Beach Nut had to be something, like a brand of some kind. <laughs> when the KKK heard a black man would be performing with white men, they tried to stop it, but Cook played anyway. Good on him. Yeah. In Little Rock, he was told that he would be performing two shows for two audiences, one white, one black. He refused to play to a split room. And so, literally, they, like, ran a piece of tape down the side of the room and separated it. Down the middle of the room? Literally down the middle of the room. And he was one of the first performers to actually get a venue to do that. At a segregated show of this sort, police dogs would walk up and down the aisles on the side of the African-Americans. And if the crowd got too riled up, the dogs had the possibility of attacking. So people would get, like, attacked by these dogs for enjoying themselves at a concert. And see, like... Good on Cook for getting it to be at least somewhat integrated, but also that just disgusts me. Like that they're the fact that they're even walking around the show with those dogs, anyways. And then it's like, but don't get too excited that you get to watch this show because Cujo here will take your leg if you do. Like that just be awful. Yeah, can't enjoy a show like that. And there's something even bigger coming up for Sam. He also became partners in 1959 with J.W. Alexander in K-Mags, now A-B-K-C-O, ABCO Music, Inc. And later that year with J.W. Samform S.A.R. Records, which is now ABCO Records. CAG's music would control not only Sam's 152 classic compositions, but also the compositions written by artists assigned to S.A.R., he saw the importance of learning the business and taking ownership of his own songs. And so that's what he did. Because remember, with RCA, he would have to wait 30 years to gain control of his masters. Right. With this, he had them. They were his. They, he owns them. Having his own publishing company and having his own record label was unprecedented. Because up until Sam Cook, no African American was the head of a record label. That is... A, that's a watershed moment. That is huge. The label soon included the Sims twins, the Valentinos, who were Bobby Womack and his brother, and Johnny Taylor. So he's signing people of note at this point, and I need you to remember the name Bobby Womack for later. I know TJ knows who Bobby Womack is, and you guys I'm, probably do I'm too. I remember. I just want you to remember that he's going to be a major player later on. He returned to Memphis, the place where he had run out of gas, and a police officer basically said, Pound Sand, and another segregated audience at the Ellis Auditorium. He actually received a telegram from the local NAACP stating that the audience for that note show was to be heavily segregated, with only one side of the three balconies being reserved for black audience members. They would make up only one-fourth of the audience, and none of them would be on floor level. He sent his brother Charlie to check it out, and when word came back the telegram was true, Cook canceled his appearance on the spot. He released a statement to, and these are This is not, this was actually a thing. This is not me saying this word, so forgive me. He released a statement to the Negro press stating that although it was the first time he ever refused to perform, it was against his policy and the policy of his promoters to play to a forced, segregated audience. Around that same time, Ray Charles took a similar stand in Augusta. 
by the time Charles Tour reached the Ellis Auditorium, his audience sat as one. Nice. Hate will get you nowhere. Nope. In the next 10 months, he released four records, which included Cupid, and I've mentioned that song before, and that's the Cupid, draw back your bow. And I don't then, think I know that one. Really? Yeah. It's a good song. It's a it's like a fluff song. It's a cute song. Okay. It's it it doesn't have that the sensuality of you send me and it doesn't have the social impact of a change is going to come. So it's kind of like a fluff piece, but it's still it's still it's fun, popular so, song. Yeah, it's a pop song. So all four of the albums should have been bestsellers, but they only sold in medium quantities. It wasn't until Twist in the Night Away in January 1962 that Cook got back on track to stay. It was a number one R&B and top ten pop hit. Next came Having a Party, which was a sequel to Twisting the Night Away. Now Cook teamed up with Lou Rawls to sing Bring It On Home to Me, which was actually an old gospel song. By the beginning of 1962, Cook was the best-selling artist on RCA behind Elvis Presley. I want you to soak that in for just a second. You had Elvis Presley... The King, and right behind him was Sam Cooke. Like, that's how big he was at the time. By the end of that same year, he was actually touring England with Little Richard, somebody who he got in trouble for not emulating earlier on. Yeah. (laughs) During this tour, he realized that seeking white or mainstream audiences had actually become unnecessary. They were coming to him. So he actually became less focused on winning them over and more on knocking them over. He began to further embrace his gospel roots, and this transition can be heard on the song that some say invented modern soul. Bring it on home to me. Such a good song. I love that song. Did you just melt a little too when I said that? I did. I love that song. That's the kind of song where you just want to be walking through your living room, no shoes on, just dancing. Yeah. On the heels of this transition, Cook actually joined the Soulsters on stage for a New Year's Eve 1962 show. So he has the validation of the Soulsters. I'm kind of happy for him that he did that. Well, yeah. Again, I'm not saying anything about anybody, but one has to kind of think and play devil's advocate a little bit of like what would behoove them to make nice since he is the number two selling artist and there was a history that would make sense for him to come and play with them so i'm glad that they made nice yeah me too cook's agent jerry brant recalls the show in the documentary sam cook legend all these women were just going up throwing their arms in the air shivering and passing out just fainting everybody was fainting that's all i remember the whole place was fainting mostly women and it was probably the best show i ever saw in my life I do love that little quote. In 1963, Cook signed kind of an odd deal. It was a five-year contract for Alan Klein to manage CAG's music and SAR records, and they made him his manager. Klein negotiated a five-year deal, three years plus two option years, with RCA, RCA Victor, in which a holding company, Tracy Limited, named after Cook's daughter, owned by Klein and manned by J.W. Alexander, would produce and own Cook's recordings. RCA Victor would get exclusive distribution rights in exchange for 6% royalty payments and payments for the recording session. For tax reasons, Cook would receive preferred stock in Tracy instead of an initial cash advance of $100,000. Cook would receive a cash advance 
of $100,000 for the next two years, followed by additional 75000 for each of the two optional years if the deal went to term. He signed this deal only a year before he died. And I only bring this up specifically because we're not really going to touch on conspiracies per se, but there is a conspiracy behind this particular deal. In May of 1963, Cook heard Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind and was overwhelmed. He couldn't believe that it wasn't written by a black man, and in fact, he couldn't believe that it wasn't written by him. <laughs> that same month, Cook spent a great deal of time talking with students at Siddons in North Carolina, and he was inspired by what he heard. On October 8, 1963, a harsher inspiration came to Cook when he attempted to check into a hotel in Shreveport. After his reservation was taken by phone, he was turned away in person. When he refused to walk away, he was arrested. It opened the floodgates for a deep and rushing song. A Change Is Gonna Come came to Cook in a dream. It was the only song that ever did, and it frightened him. He knew he risked alienating his audience, but he also knew it was the greatest thing that he had ever written. He would spend nearly a month perfecting it before finally recording it on January 30th, 1964. Cook wasn't the only one frightened by the song. Drummer John Bordeaux was also intimidated by its orchestration, so much that he actually refused to leave the studio's control room. Earl Palmer eventually stepped in to record the drum tracks. Friends told Cook that the song felt eerie, foreboding, like a premonition. As he recalls in Sam Cook Legend, friend and musician Bobby Womack told him that it felt like death. It was composed by Renee Hall and recorded on January the 30th. Hall had composed such a grandiose piece that there were 30 artists contributing to the song. This included five backing vocals, four guitars, and a complete string section, a brass section, including French horns and kettle drums. Holy moly. 30, 30 musicians. 30. To make this song. If you think... A standard band these days with, like, two guitars, a bass, drums, right? And a singer. Five people, tops. Talking just musicians, you got four. If you added a keys, you got five again. So it's like six times the normal orchestration these days. Like, well, not back. counting, like, big bands and things like that, because... It, I don't think he was really doing big band stuff no. at that time. No. That was so, like more of the 20s and 30s. Yeah. The big band era. So that's huge. Well, if you even think about think about how lush something like the Beach Boys Pet Sound was. And that was four of them. Yeah. To create something that full. I mean, I'm sure that they did extra overdubs and things like that where they were playing multiple instruments. But they did, but... But, tracking on top of each other but like that's what i'm saying though like they created such a lush sound with just just the beach boys imagine what is brought to the table when you have 30 different pieces right that are being put together and, and not made to be just like a cacophony of sounds you yeah know? <laughs> like that it actually works that's incredible yeah that's the new word of the day, by the way. Cook only performed the song live once, and that was on Johnny Carson's show just eight days after recording it. His performance should have been a career milestone, but 
it was actually overshadowed by another event which happened two days later. And that was a little band performed on the Ed Sullivan Show, and that band was called The Beatles. Bah. I know it seems like every every time he does this amazing thing, like literally just a couple days later, something comes in and overshadows him and it bugs me. He got bugged. <laughs> Get it? Beatles? Bugged? <laughs> Fired. <laughs> Three days later on February 10th, 1964... The House of Representatives voted in favor of Bill H.R. 7152, known forever as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Woohoo! But here's the thing the song wasn't released until December 22nd, 1964, which was two weeks after Cook was killed. Because remember, he was scared of releasing it. Yeah, and the tapes of the one time it was performed live on the Johnny Carson show are missing. Yeah, they're lost now. They are now lost tapes. No, I mean, the thing is, we don't even have the original tapes of the moon landing. Right. So. Those are gone. Just so you know, FYI, we don't know where the moon landing is. It was erased. It was demagnetized. Degaussed. Somebody taped over it with old episodes of Family Matters. (laughs) but i mean i feel like those are kind of important things that you want to hold on to and so maybe granted at the time that probably wouldn't have been as welcomed so they weren't as concerned about keeping it however there are many factors to that one being that well they didn't think that you know 60 70 whatever years from that point somebody would want to watch it like but we can have all the episodes of I Love Lucy. But again, very different. Because then you also have not only the main tape master, you have copies that have been made from that force indication that you were able to retrieve something. Yeah. So there are lost tapes everywhere for a lot of different shows and lost episodes. There's lost episodes of I Love Lucy mm-hmm. that people didn't make copies of anyways i got way off topic but there's a little history on film for you there you go by its own might a change is going to come did reach the people it was almost instantly adopted as an anthem for the civil rights movement cook was becoming a really prominent figure in the civil rights movement and i love this story basically cassius clay had just dropped sunny liston who was like the champ and they had gone eight rounds So this was like a major fight. And after he drops Sonny, he's being interviewed by this guy. And he refuses to answer any questions that this (laughs) this reporter has. And he just keeps screaming for Sam Cooke to get into the ring with him. He's like, get up, Sam. Come, get Sam. Get Sam. Get Sam. And he grabs Sam and he's like, this is the best music. This is the best singer in music today. And I think at some point Jim just gave up. (laughs) It's just like... Yep, we see him. Yep, that's Sam Cook. What a great guy. Yeah. And Sam is almost catapulted into the ring. And Cash just like grabbed him by the neck and like gave him a noogie. And just kept just screaming how much Sam was like his friend and great singer. So finally, <laughs> Sam kind of got loose of him and 
Cash just grabbed him by the face and he's like, you're beautiful. And he was a, you know, thank you. And they tried to pull the two of them apart so that they could get a, a decent interview out of Cassius Clay. And so finally Sam was like escorted out of the ring. But like that's a great moment in that documentary that I watched. It's just they have an actual clip of what happened after the fight. And it's just hilarious because it's just Muhammad Ali. Like the, Like when you think of boxers, he's like one of the first people you think of. And he's just totally fangirling over Sam Cooke. Nice. I just love that. That's just one of my... I, I, I loved watching that. It just brought a giant smile on my face. In the summer of 1964, Cooke donated A Change Is Gonna Come to the SCLC for the album The Star Salute. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would later ask him to participate in the Civil Rights Benefit Concert, a request reserved for artists having the greatest impact on people. But that just tells you how big Sam was, that, that one of the, the people who was at the forefront of the civil rights movements asked him to perform because he felt like he would have the most impact on people. Yeah. The summer of 1964 also marked Cook's return to the Copa. To the Copacabana. To the, to the Copa. Copa. Copacabana. We're just going to, every time it's brought up, we have to sing it. I'm sorry. <laughs> He was no, no longer trying to win the audience, but determined to awe them. He rehearsed endlessly. In Sam Cooke, the legend documentary, Bobby Womack recalls that he rehearsed and he rehearsed until he knew the songs backwards. And he says, and I quote, and forgive me, cover up the little one's ears. I'm going to get them fuckers this time. And on July 7th and the 8th, he got them. He took it a step further when he sang the song that he heard at sit-ins and marches all over the country, This Little Light of Mine. He sang it to an audience that perhaps needed to hear it the most. And that's where we're going to leave you guys this week. And we're actually going to pick up next week on the day of his passing because it is a lot to unpack. Yeah, I know. I was When I was looking at your notes earlier, I'm like, wait a minute. There's like an entire half of the episode just devoted to his death. So... Yeah, yeah, because it's actually told from the perspective of three different people and one of them being dead. But it is. It's so there's so much meat in that story of that one night because it's so easy to find information out about what happened. That's where we're going to leave you guys this week. We'll hope you come back next week to check out the second episode of Sam Cook. And we do apologize for all the multiple episodes. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not our been our intention. It's just we've done a lot of really heavy duty stories lately that require it's one of those things we we have to debate every time of like, well, do we just make it a longer episode or do we cut it into two parts? And we feel like it's easier for both us and you guys uh to split them in two for right now. So, we will get back to normal episodes soon. <laughs> Yeah. After August, I think. <laughs> yeah. After after August, definitely after September, <laughs> we'll get back to normal episodes. Yeah. So thank you so much, guys, for checking this episode out. Make sure to check us out next week where we finish up, Sam. Our social stuff. If you'd like to help the show out, you can find us at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Still not saying our websites, but you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And that is pretty much it, guys. Thank you so much. Keep rocking in the free world. Tracy, please go to bed. Yeah, you too.
All right. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.